sermon scripture is Judges 13. And the people of Israel again did did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent to whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, but Manoah her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly to, and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be done with the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded to her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that the angel was, not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who worked wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah went, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in Mahanadon between Zorah and Eshcol. This is the word of the Lord. open us another word of prayer. Father, 
God, we love you, we adore you. We ask you to show yourself to us through your word this morning. Help us to remember the hymn of sacred ground. The living God is amongst us. Jesus, may we be your people. One of the great mysteries of our time is why America, despite our relative size, the third most populous country in the world, actually China and India, and why, despite our great wealth, we have the greatest GDP of any nation in, in the world by quite a bit, why, despite our relative size and wealth, we never seem to make a decent appearance at the World Cup. We are destroyed by countries a fraction of our size. Case in point, this summer, uh, Panama, the country of Panama, played an ice skating tournament, and we lost. Panama is literally half the size of New York City. I do not know how statistically possible, how it is statistically possible for a nation that small to beat us, and yet every year, every four years. And here's the thing is, you know, as, as, as we're, you know, I think we're, what, two years away from the next World Cup, as the time approaches, all of the soccer enthusiasts in America and the sports analysts are saying, this, this is the year. This is when we're going to break out and make our showing, make our name for ourselves. And I actually stumbled across an old article in 2016, 17. So it was, it was written preparing for the 2018 World Cup. And the article's about uh, the youth uh, soccer development program in America. And it's about how about 10 years before that, they'd gone through some systematic changes in how they developed, like, the, the next generation of youth soccer players. And this article was saying, look, you know, this is the first World Cup that we're going to see the benefits of this systematic change in how we develop, you know, the elite youth soccer of our nation. 2018, that's going to be the breakout year. And if you remember, we didn't even qualify for the World Cup in 2018. First time since the 80s, we didn't even qualify. But again, every four years, great expectations. Every reason to believe this could be the year, and it doesn't really ever come to pass. If there's any judge in the book of Judges who was born with great expectations, it was Samson. When God sees fit to announce your birth ahead of time to your mother, we can expect unusually good things from you. Samson was also born at a time when Israel desperately needed a leader. They needed someone to deliver them from the Philistines. That was same time, their arch nemesis, the nation of the Philistines, they needed someone to deliver them. But even more, Israel needed a leader who would be devoted to Yahweh, heart and soul, who would lead them back towards worship of Him. Unfortunately, Samson turns out to be not the great Savior deliver they needed, but really a great disappointment. And if our hope was in Samson, we would be of all people most disappointed. But in fact, the very failure of Samson is pointing forward to the fact that we do need a greater hope. We do need a greater Savior. And that would be Jesus, many, many years after Samson. But Samson's own failure points to that. And in fact, the one he points to is one who would also be born with great expectations. But who, in contrast to Samson, would exceed all expectations beyond what anyone could have imagined or thought or hoped. So our outline for us this morning, the first point, great expectations second point, a few lessons on marriage. Third point, the greatest need, godly pride. 
to our first point, great expectations. Let me read first again, verses 1-7. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there's a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And you shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the woman came and told her husband, the man of God came to me, his appearance was, the, was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink. And eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. When we get to chapter 13, it comes as something of a reprieve. If you've been here the last few weeks, Judges, as it progresses, it gets darker and darker. It's showing us the fragmentation of the nation of Israel in the period of Judges. Then here all of a sudden in chapter 13, find a married couple who seem to love each other, seem to have a healthy marriage, who seem to want to know and serve and obey Yahweh. This is, you know, when you're, in a, when you're preaching a sermon, and it's going to be a heavy sermon, you know that people need some kind of break in the tension, or they will be exhausted. But God gives us a reprieve here. It's a chapter of, oh, goodness. But even more important is that finally God speaks. The chapters coming up to this have been dark. We saw the ending of Gideon's ministry, which ended very poorly. We saw the failed monarchy of Abimelech. We saw the very mixed judgeship of Jephthah. But what's most con uh, significant about those four chapters is that God never speaks. His voice is just silent. And in fact, only one person even speaks to God in all those four chapters, and it's Jephthah as he tries to barter with God. But finally, chapter 13 opens, and again, it's God speaking. <gasps> finally, God is speaking again. And not only that, we see Israelites praying back to God, not trying to bargain with God, not trying to barter with Him as if He's a petty deity like the Baals, but seeking His will, wanting to do and, uh, what He wants, wanting to walk in obedience to Him. A little interpretive tip, again, as we go through the book of Judges, it, it, just, it can be hard to interpret because it gets so dark and so just crazy. Look for when God speaks, and even more when people speak back to God. That's an indication that something is good here, something perhaps exemplary for us. At the very least, it's telling us God is, is doing something here. He wants your attention to it. And so again, here we see a story of men and women other. No one is slaughtering anyone else. We see humble seeking of God's will and obedience to it. And most of all, we see the God who out of immense grace upon grace brings salvation on a weary people. But in our story, God speaks to Manoah's wife through this messenger of Yahweh. Now a little side note. I think we're supposed to understand that this is not an angel, but this is God himself. 
perhaps even a pre-incarnate appearing of the Son of God. And the reason we're supposed to see that is there's tips, for instance, uh, when they ask his name, he says, why do you ask my name? Considering it's wonderful. Sounds very reminiscent of Exodus. What shall, who shall I say sent me? God says, I am who I am. But even more significant is that Manoah and his wife think they have seen God at the end, which is why they're terrified and they fall on their faces. It is not an angel appearing to Manoah's wife here. It is God himself who's appearing to her. And he tells her that she, a woman who had been previously unable to give birth, will give birth to a son who will be a Nazarite. And most significant, he will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And of course, this son will be Samson. I have two observations I want to make on this promise these great expectations for Samson. The first is that, not to be too obvious, this is good news. And it's first of all good news for Manoah's wife. She says she's barren, which means that this is chronic infertility. It's not a couple months. She's someone who is not able to give birth. And we don't need to do a whole lot of ancient Near East research to understand the pain and the sorrow that can come with infertility. But at the time, not only did they have to deal with the, the really understandable pain and sorrow of wanting to have kids and being unable to, there was also a shame that came along with it. A woman who could not give birth was, was shaming her family. Again, this is the tragedy of humanity that we take difficult things to take. We figure out a way to make it more difficult for those experiencing it. Obviously, infertility is one of those things. And then this is her plight. And, God, when he comes to Manoah's wife, he's not just bringing salvation to Israel, but he's bringing joy and honor to this woman and her baby. God could have brought salvation in so many ways. How did he do it? He decided to bring joy and honor into this one unnamed, probably unnamed, unknown baby. God is not so great that he does not care about your very personal, your individual sorrows, but we all carry them. And because God is so great, he can do something about it. Maybe he won't give you exactly what you long for, like he does with Manoah's wife, but he will at the very least give you peace that transcends understanding. But only he alone can bring that. But it's also, again, it's good news for the whole nation of Israel. Israel is being oppressed by the Philistines, and here comes God, and he says this, this son, verse 5, will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. If you remember from Jephthah, the judge before this, there's not an explicit calling of Jephthah as a judge. We look for the hand of God as, as kind of the mysterious providential workings behind the scenes. But here God comes out and says, this is one who will deliver you. God declares it, announces it. Not hiding behind the scenes. Israel, your Savior is coming for you. Good news. Good news for Israel. That's the first observation. Is this is good news for Israel. Second observation is that Samson was going to be a Nazarite. Now, when I say Nazarite, that's not to be confused with Nazarene. Jesus was a Nazarene, which means he was from Nazareth. Nazarite, completely different word. Nazarite means one who is set apart or consecrated for something. In the Old Testament, you could take a Nazarite vow. We see the instructions for this in number six. But to take a Nazarite vow means that you were dedicating yourself to the Lord in a special way. And there were three requirements if you were going to take a Nazarite vow that you had to uphold for the length of your vow. And these are what the angel or, or God himself tells Manoah's wife. First, you're not supposed to cut your hair. Second, you're supposed to refrain from all alcoholic beverages. And then third, you're supposed to avoid touching or contact with dead bodies. That would make you 
ceremonially unclean. Samson's going to be in Nazareth, and here's the thing. Samson, they think he's just going to be an ordinary Nazarite. Vows, Nazarite vows are supposed to be temporary. You took it on for a season, and then when you've fulfilled your vow, you moved on with your life. Samson was a Nazarite from the moment of conception, which is why his mother had to abide by the Nazarite regulations as well, until his death. His whole life was to be consecrated to the Lord. Second, Nazarite vows are supposed to be voluntary. Samson has no choice in this. God had announced it before he was conceived. You will be a Nazarite from the womb until the day of your death. And then third, Nazarites were supposed to avoid dead bodies, but Samson is to avoid anything unclean. Priests were supposed to avoid anything unclean when they were ministering before the tabernacle. That was God's house. And so a priest had to avoid various foods and, and, and things that would make him ceremonially unclean because he ministered in the presence of God. Samson was to spend his entire life clean. Why? Because he was to live his entire life in the presence of God. Samson was one who was unusually, he was supposed to be unusually and undividedly set apart for the Lord. He was to be the Lord's alone. And it's important to know that because it throws into relief how far Samson fell from that. But we're given great expectations for this one who will begin to deliver Israel from their enemies. Now, the first time you read this, you may notice fairly quickly that this looks a whole lot like Jesus' birth. Jesus also has an angel announce to his mother before him that she will give birth and that her son will go on to save Israel. But before we get to that, I actually want to point out that there are a number of miraculous births throughout the Old Testament that all are very reminiscent of this. And it's helpful to look at them because they teach us something about God and about our relation to God. The first time we see this is the birth of Isaac. Abraham and Sarah, God has spoken promises to Abraham and Sarah, saying, from your descendants, I'll create one, a great nation, and, 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 and from them will come one who will bless the nations. The problem is Abraham and Sarah don't have any children, and they're like 90, well past the age of childbirth. And God comes and appears and says, no, you will conceive and give birth, and Sarah, in her 90s, conceives and gives birth to a child, Isaac. Second, we see the birth of Samuel, whose mother Hannah was also infertile. And this one's a little different in that God doesn't appear in the same way, but it's very clear that God is the one who opens Hannah's womb. And she gives birth to Samuel. And then we have Samson. Actually, Samson's before that. And then in the New Testament, John the Baptist. His mother Elizabeth and Zechariah were also infertile. And once again, God appears to Zechariah this time, the father, and says, your wife will give birth. And that's how John the Baptist born. Some similarities with all of these miraculous births is that first they were all humanly impossible. Uh, Abraham and Sarah were far too old. Hannah was infertile. Uh, Manoah's wife was infertile. Same thing with Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They were infertile. God comes in and does what no human is able to do, and he brings about these children. Second is that each one of these played a very important part in God's story of salvation through the Bible. Again, Abraham and Sarah are the ones who receive the great promises that God is doing something new, and from their lineage will come one who will bless the nations. But they don't have a child, and there's going to come to that promise. And 
for Isaac is the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise that will one day culminate in Jesus. Of course, uh, Samuel, the, the, the son of Hannah, he was the last judge in the history of the judges, and he's the one who calls out and anoints David, who's the greatest king Israel ever has. And then, uh, and, and, and then of course, we have uh, John the Baptist who announces the coming of the very Messiah. And then we get to Jesus, who is in a very similar theme in that his birth was also impossible, but at the same time, it's on another level. With all the Old Testament women who give birth, God just simply takes what normally works and wasn't working and made it work. But Jesus was born to a virgin. Virgins can't give birth. Our species does not self-procreate. Again, God does what is impossible. And Jesus is not just one part in, in the story of salvation, but he is the culmination of the whole Bible. What's the point in all this? What God is telling Israel through this birth, this miraculous birth of Samson, is the salvation you need is one that you will never be able to provide for yourself. You need God to break into your world and to save you in a way that no one, no human ever could. The salvation that God will bring to us will be so great and so totally work of his that the only way can we, re we can receive it is by placing our faith and our trust in Jesus alone. And so Samson, he's this miracle baby whose birth demonstrates that only God can save his complicated and disappointing life points forward to the need of a far greater Savior and Deliverer. That's our first point, great expectation. Move on to our second point, which is verses 8 to 14, a few lessons on names. Let me read it for us again. <clears throat> then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you've sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Now, when I was reading through this and studying it, I wasn't 100% sure of how to preach this because it's kind of an interval. The, whole, the point of chapter 1 are these great expectations of what God is going to do in bringing Samson. And then we get this kind of unusual interlude where we get a bit of a glimpse into this married life of Manoah and his wife and how they're trying to figure out what do we make of this very strange news that Manoah and his wife have been given. And I wasn't sure how to, how to handle this and, and, and the direction I wanted to go. I wasn't sure. I'm like, am I, am, I see, am I reading this into there? But most of the commentaries move in this direction, and so I felt comfortable. Okay, I, I, I don't think I'm making this up. I think this is what the text is telling us. But I want to look at three lessons, I think, that this text gives us on marriage. Because, again, we get this beautiful and funny and interesting glimpse into the married life 
of Manoah and his wife as they try to navigate and understand the mysterious workings of God's sovereign work in their lives. Now, a quick layout, uh, which I think is in the background of the story, uh, I want to share what I see as kind of the biblical teaching on, on marriage. Uh, I think what the Bible teaches is that God has made husbands and wives equally, fully in the image of God, and that there are aspects of their discipleship that as a husband, as a wife, they live out a little bit differently from each other. And so what I believe the Bible teaches is that God has called men to humble, gentle, and self-sacrificial leadership in their homes. And he's called wives to receive and encourage their, hum- their husbands' humble, gentle, self-sacrificial leadership. I see this in Ephesians and Colossians and First Peter. I think that the biblical case for gender roles in this way in the marriage is, is, is pretty strong because we get two different apostles writing in two different apostolic letters. It's not just an obscure verse that we find somewhere, you know, if you're familiar with, like, because of the angels. <laughs> There's this verse in 1 Corinthians that says women should have a sign of authority on their head because of the angels. And you look at the commentaries, and if they're honest, they're just like, yeah, we don't know what this means. Move on. This is not like that. Very clear teaching, and then we get First and uh, we get Genesis one and two, which do nothing to contradict this, but give just a lot more nuance and a lot more perspective to it. But here's the point: stating that basic principle, y'all, that's the easy part. That's the easy part. I could teach my children that principle. It's how we apply it that takes wisdom and humility and a whole lot of grace for each other as we figure out these different callings of discipleship married life. So that's why I think this story is so interesting and so helpful because it's just an honest look at like a couple trying to make sense of a very strange and unusual situation. So here are my three kind of lessons for us that we can take from this. Here's the first lesson. Godly men, godly husbands I should say, listen to their wives. Godly husbands listen to their wives. The messenger from God, or again, I think of God himself, he speaks to Manoah's wife first. And in fact, the second time when he answers Manoah's prayer, again, he goes and speaks to Manoah's wife. And then in fact, at the end of the story, Manoah is freaking out, and and it's his wife who has to comfort him. And he receives her counsel, and he's comforted. Godly husband leadership does not mean a husband doesn't listen to his wife that a husband doesn't value the input and counsel of his wife or ever listen to the advice of his wife. This should be an obvious truth, and I wish I didn't have to dwell on it, but there are extreme positions within the kind of broad world of Christians who believe that God has given distinct instructions for husbands and wives that would, at the very least, be uncomfortable with a husband ever listening to his wife give him direction and instruction. And I want you to know that that is a minority position within this world, and I want to give you some evidence of that. First, when I took preaching at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, so did Mike Coleman, fantastic professor, fantastic class, and the question came up, what do you do when a a, a man, a husband, feels called to pastoral ministry, and his wife is like, no, I'm, I'm not interested. What do you do? And Mike Coleman did not say, husbands, you need to tell your wives to submit. What he said was, brothers, when you're discerning God's will for your life, your wife is one of the best places to look. 
In other words, you may be gung-ho about ministry, but if your wife's like, I don't think so, that very well may be God's voice speaking to you through your wife, and you would do well to listen to her. Second, one of the commentaries I consult on judges is called Preaching the Word Commentary. It's edited by Kent Hughes. It's recommended by D.A. Carson, Daniel Packer, Brian Chappell wrote Christ-centered preaching. If you take preaching at Southern, you will read some of these guys. In other words, it's a solidly reformed and complementarian commentary. And this is what Barry Webb, the commentator in that commentary series, says about this text. He says, so much pain and so many mistakes could be avoided if only we learned early in our marriages to value the common sense and spiritual insights Again, godly husbands listen to their wives. Now, I've, I have a little word for our wives as well. And it's this. I, I, sometimes I've seen churches that value this kind of understanding of, of husbands and wives. It can lead to passivity for a while. And occasionally I've seen wives say, well, my husband, he's doing the spiritual leadership thing. I'm going to let him like handle that and take control of it. And I'm just going to do whatever he wants. And I don't want to be too blunt here, but that's not, that's not biblical submission, and that's just wrong. If you're a wife, how do you know God doesn't want to say something to you through your husband, or say something to your husband through you? How do you know? And how could you know that unless you're listening for his voice through reading his word and prayer? My, and, and sisters, I, I want to say this, and this is for everyone, brothers and sisters, so especially for my sisters. Before any role you will play in this life, as a mother, as a wife, as a student, as an employee, you are first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. And no one can follow Jesus for you. So, godly husbands listen to their wives. Second message we get from this is that godly husbands lead their families through humble prayer. What's so helpful, again, about this example is we see, we, see, we see two things. We see Manoah listening to his wife, and he kind of he accepts it as true. He doesn't question whether she heard from the Lord. He doesn't mansplain to her. He says, yes, it's probably true. And then what does he do? Well, he tries to take, he tries to take initiative. He tries to lead. And his wife, she, she's not trying to control the situation either. She's allowing him to lead. And how does he lead? He leads through humble prayer. not threatened in any way by his wife's initiative. And he needs the Lord's wisdom. What does he do next? How do we raise our families? How do we as, as a couple, what is the way forward look like for us? Uh, word for our brothers, if you're married or if you want to be married, the first way you can lead your family, the most important way you will lead your family is through humble personal prayer. On your behalf, but you know it for your wife and for your family. And there is no Christian leadership in the home or in the church that is not fundamentally dependent on prayer to Christ for help. So again, first, godly husbands listen to their wives. Second, godly husbands or godly, yeah, godly husbands lead their families through prayer. And then third, godly husbands lead their wives as partners. Notice this, when Manoah prays to the Lord, and then when he's finally able to talk to the messenger from Yahweh, he doesn't say, okay, what do I, as head of the household, 
What do I need to do about this? How should I raise a child? What do you want me to do? It's all us. It's all on us. What should we do with this? How should we raise a child? The picture here is Manoah and his wife. Yes, Manoah's taking leadership. Absolutely. He's taking initiative. But it's him with his wife saying, we're going to do this together as partners. When biblical gender roles are misunderstood or, or more common, misapplied, there can be an infantilizing of women, treating them as women child, women pussy. And there's nothing biblical about that either. The picture in Genesis 2, which is breathtakingly beautiful, is not a picture of a husband saying, sweetie, hold my hand. I'll make all the decisions for you. I'll tell you what to read. I'll tell you how to dress. I'll tell you what to listen to. Again, I wish I didn't have to address this, but we see these extreme views. The picture in Genesis 2 of Eve is created for Adam as a strong and necessary support. She's not a, you know, beautiful but fundamentally unnecessary sidekick. It's like, Adam, you can't fulfill the cultural mandate on your life without your wife. Not just you need her to make babies. Cultural mandate was creating art and music and culture and education. This is a, a world with vast untapped potential. Fill it. And, and you can't do it without me. Man can't do it without woman. We're both needed. That's why when Eve is described as in the translated helper, which is somewhat helpful, somewhat not helpful, the word ezer, it's the same word in Psalm 123 where God is our help. And we would do well to never minimize or patronize or infantilize God as helper. So again, Godly leadership in the home is a husband leading his wife to join him as an equal and needed partner in the crazy journey of life that God leads us on. So again, this is kind of an interlude in, in, in the story, but our first point was these great expectations. The prophecy of Samson seems like he's going to be the one who will deliver and save Israel, and yet the very failures of Samson are going to point us forward to the true deliverer and savior of men. And the second point we've got in this little miracle interlude where we've seen that godly husbands listen to their wives, godly husbands lead their families through prayer, and godly husbands lead their wives as equal partners. But lastly, we see the greatest need in all this, which is God himself, and this is verses 15 to 25. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering and offer it to the Lord. But Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when the words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. And then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, 
For we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering or a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. So again, the greatest need is God himself. What did Manoah want from God, from the angel, the messenger? He wants more details. He wants more specificity. Give me some rules. Give me a checklist of how to raise this son. What does God give him? Well, again, let's pick up verse 20. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar, and Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Verse 22, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. What does God give to Manoah and his wife? He doesn't give them more regulations. He gives them himself. He shows them himself. This is so important. A list of more and specific rules for how we are to act would not be enough. Because without God himself, we can't obey the rules that we have. It's so significant that when Christ came, he didn't bring a new version of the Ten Commandments. We get no New Testament in Leviticus with all these detailed prescriptions for exactly how we should do these and not do this. I mean, there are commandments, absolutely. But it's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. six, He says, he, God, he's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. God is doing a new thing with his people. And it's not of the letter, but of the spirit. What is Paul saying there? It's not of the letter, but refers to the law. God doesn't give us a new Leviticus with a thousand detailed prescriptions. This is how you live. What do you do? It's of the Spirit. God doesn't give us a new Leviticus. He gave us himself. The gift of the Spirit that every person who trusts in Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. At all times, in all places. Again, instead of Christ giving us more regulations or more rules, he does the best thing possible, which is that he gives us himself. Beloved, what do you need most? It's not six steps to easing it out or four steps to being a productive work or three things every husband needs to do or three things every wife needs to do. You need the presence of God himself. You need the spirit living in your hearts so that you become consciously aware that like Samson the Nazarite, you walk in the constant presence of the living God. I will never love my wife in the deeply self-sacrificial way that my king has called me to unless I'm filled with the spirit of Christ. I will never shepherd this church in spirit and truth unless I know that the great shepherd himself is with me. We as a church, we will never be the salt and light, the aroma of the gospel in all the places God has you, in school and in work, in your neighborhood and in this neighborhood, unless we just know in the depths of our beings that we walk in the presence of the one who was is and who is to come. Would you close prayer quickly? 
Be like Noah and his wife, waiting for you to call us. 